Welcome to the Common Grounds Unity Podcast, where we have great conversations with unity-minded Christians. Our goal is to encourage unity of the Spirit within the Stone-Campbell movement and beyond. We believe unity starts with a cup of coffee. So grab a cup and join us as we seek to fulfill Jesus' prayer that we may all be one. And now... Here are your co-hosts. Welcome once again to another conversation here on our Common Grounds Unity Podcast. We're glad to be back with you today, and I am uh, missing my regular co-host, Megan Rawlings, but filling in for Megan is a terrific uh, guest co-host, Nadine Templer. And many of you know Nadine. I mentioned it last week. Uh, from some interviews that Megan did with her a number of podcasts back. Uh, but Nadine is back with us today. And Nadine lives in Kathmandu, Nepal. What an interesting place to live. She and her uh, husband do ministry there. Um, they, they work with Hope Worldwide, which is a, a benevolent arm of the International Churches of Christ. And she has a passion for uh folks who are living on the margins, who are materially poor. She wants them to know the love of Jesus and the richness that is ours in Christ. So Nadine, good to have you back with us. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me back. I am so excited about today's episode. Well, I, I hope folks go back if they haven't. Many I, I know have, but listen to the interviews that uh, Megan had with you. Just su such a passion for what you're about and what you're doing. So it's a blessing to have you with us. And it's great to have Dr. James Gorman back. Um, Dr. Gorman is a professor of history at Johnson University, and I gave him a more detailed inter, or introduction last week. So go back and listen to last week's podcast if you missed it. But he, uh, he teaches uh, history there. He's got a passion for the kingdom for our history in particular, as well as just the history of Christianity. Um, he also has a passion for the unity of believers in Christ, and that's one of the reasons he's here with us, and not just uh, unity of, of Christians um, in, in unifying churches per se, but, but the unity of all people in Christ, racial unity and justice. And so one of the works that I mentioned that uh, he was a participant in uh, that can bless you to read is Slavery's Long Shadow, Race and Reconciliation in American Christianity. That's a book that he uh, edited along with Jeff Childers and Mark Hamilton. It was released back in 2019 uh, on Erdman's, and you can pick up a copy of Slavery's Long Shadow Um just by Googling the title, we'll give it to you again at the end of the podcast, uh, but you can get it on Amazon and at other booksellers. So that's going to form a lot of the basis for our conversation today. Jamie, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Well, honor to have you with us. Uh, Nadine, why don't you kick us off with this podcast? Yes. Yeah, so, Jamie, I am so, so excited about this topic today. Um, obviously, unity is important to Jesus. It's important to you. It's important to all of us. Could you talk to us about how you see unity and race relations being related? 
Yes, absolutely. And thank you so much um, for having me. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, if we think about this, if you think about um, Jesus Christ and the fact that he came and broke down barriers among his people, any kind of barriers we could possibly put up, he broke those down. And yet in America, when we get together to worship that Christ, we are about as segregated as we are at any other time in our society across, you know, broadly the, the American uh, Christian church. Uh, that is deeply disturbing to me, especially as a historian, um, knowing that those racial divisions came about because of the sin of racism. Uh, and so, uh, so for me, as I think about, especially as a member of the Stone Campbell movement and what is it thinking about, what does it mean for us to use our heritage and bring that to the table today to the, to the worldwide church? I think we have some really rich resources about Christian unity that can help us lean into our current racially divided um, uh, church. And so, you know, the founders of the Stone Campbell movement were reading John 17 and, 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 and believing that Jesus meant what he said when he said, the world by your unity will believe in me. Uh, and the founder said, well, if our unity in some way is a testimony to the world of, of Christ's goodness and, and the truth of Christ, then our divisions are testimony to the world of, of the opposite. Uh, and so they were very concerned about denominational divisions, the, 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 the mean-spirited and bickering between denominations. And, and although that continues to certainly be something we need to um, be engaging, uh, I think today in 2021, the racial divisions of the church are an area where we, I think, are very well positioned with, the, with our heritage's resources to really engage. And I, I should also say, I mean, because I know a lot of our, a lot of the listeners to the podcast are uh, affiliated with the ICOC, and certainly the ICOC in a lot of ways uh, is ahead of other denominations in terms of creating multi-cultural uh, spaces or multi-racial spaces. But I should also highlight, and, and as many listeners will be aware, even in multi-cultural uh, spaces or multi-racial spaces, we continue today to deal with uh, the issue of the, you know, the word would be assimilation. That is the idea there's this dominant culture and uh, racial groups outside of the dominant culture, just sort of the assumption is that their assimilation will happen. And so no matter where we find ourselves in the Christian church today, uh, or in, you know, in our particular denominations, this idea, this, this racial division that, you know, sort of really, really in our faces in American society this last year is something that we have to wrestle with. We haven't yet dealt with it fully. We haven't yet really wrestled with our roots. We haven't yet gotten into the attic and been real honest about our stories collectively. And so uh, I think uh, the call to Christian unity and the call to better race relations are one and the same in 2021 in America. Well, Jamie, your, your most recent uh, work that you were involved with um, as, as far as a uh, produced book um, is a significant work. And I think it really helps us to deal with, with this whole issue. It, I mentioned it at the start. It is uh, called Slavery's Long Shadow, Race and Reconciliation in American Christianity. Uh, you were a, a co-editor in that project, but a lot of great contributors to it. First, let me ask you to just give us an overview of the book and your involvement in the project. 
Yeah, so this, it, w- it was a real gift um, that I was called, uh, invited to be part of this project. So for those who don't know, this book is uh, done in honor of Doug Foster. Some of your listeners will no doubt know Doug Foster. I know uh, he has done at least one podcast with, with you all, maybe more. Um, Absolutely. So, so Doug was my major academic mentor at Abilene Christian University. He is one of the people that helped me deeply fall in love with the Stone Campbell movement and its heritage. He also was the first one to really awaken me to our history of race relations in the church and in American society. And so what happened then was it, it was around, um, boy, I'm probably going to get the, the year. It was either 20, I think it was probably 2016. Um, it might've been 2015. I think 2016, um, my co-editors, Mark Hamilton and Jeff Childers, both of whom were my former professors, uh, had decided that we were going to, they were wanted to do a book in honor of Doug, which is kind of common in academic circles. You do this. It's, it's, it's called a fest drift often. Um, this is a volume that's, you know, people write essays in, in honor of this particular person to further the field of study that that person uh, has devoted their scholarly career to. And so Doug, uh, as, as Mark uh, Hamilton and Jeff Childers, again, two other two of Doug's colleagues, invited me in as kind of an expert on American religion uh, to, to be a co-editor with them, we started brainstorming. And within about an hour of our brainstorming, we had kind of landed on the vision of what this book could be. Because Doug's, the two emphases Doug has really emphasized, or the two things he has emphasized in his work are, are Christian unity, and uh, especially lately, um, our history of race and race relations. And so what we came to agree on was like, man, it would be really interesting to put together a book that is especially aimed at like college level students. Um, so it's not just an academic affair. It's, it's really meant to be for uh, people to read uh, at, you know, at, at the college level that ask the question, how ha-, and this is the question that drives every chapter in the book, how has uh, or how have race relations in American history, um, affected the unity or the division of the church. I'll say that one more time because it drives the whole book. How have how have race relations influenced the division or the unity uh, in the American church? And so we asked all the different scholars to you know produce uh, chapters. It different, you know, and, and people brought different stuff to the table, but that, that was the driving question, whether it's over an era or if you're doing something topical, can you use this frame to talk about, let's do it, let's do a history of uh, race and unity in um, American Christianity and in the Stone Campbell movement. So that's kind of how the, the book came to be. Uh, I got invited in and we did our brainstorming and then off we went inviting scholars and pitching the book uh, to Erdman's. And we have friends at Erdman's who are really excited about the project. And so um, off we went and, and, and we ended up eventually several years later, finally, with this, uh, with the, the book that you've got. Can you discuss with us why, why does racial or why do racial tensions or racial unity continue to be a problem? within the church and within the Stone Campbell movement? What would be your observations? Yeah, yeah, no, that, that's a great question. I, 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 you know, I wish I had a crystal ball that, you know, could really, uh, you know, help us help us get there in the future. But I mean, part of, part of the reason, and, and this won't be a surprise to you that I'm going to say this as a historian, but part of it is, is because we have not yet reckoned with our, our history, our racial history. Um, uh, we haven't been completely honest about our past. We haven't been really willing to mostly willing to tell full and honest um, stories about our, our, our history of race. And I think until we understand our past, we cannot understand our present and we will not be able to live into a better and more united 
future. Because where there has been moral injury in the past, we must name it and work for moral repair. But we continue having problems, even even naming and confronting our past and where there has been moral injury, let alone, you know, doing the work of sort of repenting of missteps or attempting to repair divisions. And even as I use these words, right, some listeners are kind of, you know, maybe their heart is kind of beaten or this, this, the palms get sweaty, you know, because we our context. This is the second reason, I think our context makes this really, really hard. Because racial issues are at the center of our divisions in American culture, more broadly speaking. So in many ways, I think race and discussions about race have been politicized. Sometimes they've been weaponized, you know, so, so that in such a way that like what I see as absolutely necessary to discuss. And I might say that like, hey, look, we have to talk about this. Another person then says, oh, well, you're being it's divisive to discuss that. And so our context right now makes it really, really hard. What might seem obvious to one person has turned into a debate for another or bad for another one. So it's really, really hard right now, I think, to have conversations about race. But I, let me give you a couple of, um, you know, th to the last part of your question there. Um, or maybe I'm just making that. Maybe I'm going to ask my own question. <laughs> That's all right. It, but, you can interview yeah. yourself here yeah, on this podcast right, too. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're thinking about thinking about ways forward. I mean, one of the things that I think we have to we have to cultivate is a posture of inquisitiveness. All of us, a, a posture of inquisitiveness, a posture of curiosity, a posture of prayerfulness. Um, I think this is so important. And, and one of the things I think that we need to do as Christians to continue having these hard conversations, we can't just not have the conversations um, and we can't just fall into the ruts that the broader uh, culture and div divisions are, which is like, oh, you can either talk about it or you're being divisive. I think we language can be a really helpful thing here. I think we as 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 people um, of the book, uh, we have we have language that we can use. Um, that is vibrant and good, like kingdom uh, mm -hmm. and shalom and mm -hmm. unity and yeah. healing and these words that are absolutely central to who we are as God's people. And I think as we right now more than ever, you know, I, 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 the, the importance of our stories, the stories we tell, the stories we listen to about who we are as people in the world about who we are as Christians, the story of God, as we get it from the, from the beginning to the end of the Bible, like who God is and who we are and what's wrong in the world and how we're called to participate God, participate with God in Shalom and, and leaning into the kingdom of God as, you know, Jesus announces it in, in Luke four and all of its beauty. Um, that is for the hurting and for the oppressed and for the prisoner and for the marginalized, this kingdom that we're all about. I mean, we have these ways of talking uh, about about these things as Christians that I think are central to our story and can help us have our have a vibrant conversation that might get us out of some of the the ruts that are that you know that, that some of the cultural divisions just automatically happen in the church and they uh, they ought not to. Wow, I feel a sermon coming on here. Yeah, right. Um, I, I'm really? trying to. I'm <laughs> holding back the sermon. Trying not no, to preach. We, we like some preaching here, buddy. We, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes, I, yes, in, cl in class, I tell my students, I'm like, all right, okay, and I just step away. I was like, I'm. It's time to preach, you know. And then I just, Amen. I have a little sermon, and then we go back um, to it. I Jesus really preached and taught.
Yeah. I appreciate your passion on this topic and your candor and your honesty, uh, even using words that are courageous words. Um, but going into the book, you know, the book offers three entry points into this conversation. Uh, and maybe we can discuss those. The first one, you, you've titled the first entry point as major historical periods. So could you summarize some of the thoughts in that section for us? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and I mean, I should probably just go ahead and give massive thanks to all the authors in this book. The, the book would not be what it is without all the people willing to, to you know, do really, really hard work. Um, that is all about furthering the kingdom of God, furthering our historical knowledge and about honoring Doug, uh, you know, n pretty much none of these authors are ever going to see any money from any of this. And so this is a real labor of love, um, for the kingdom and for the discipline and for knowledge. And so thanks to all of these folks who agreed to do the hard work of putting these things together. But yeah, so the first section is really, it's five. The so there are three sections, as you noted, and the first section is five chapters that cover most of the historical eras in American, like in American history. And so, you know, there are five chapters. So the, the first chapter covers kind of the early national era and the second great awakening. The second chapter covers, again, these all have the lens of how have race relations affected the unity and the division of Christian churches. The second chapter focuses on antebellum, that is before the civil war and reconstruction uh, history. So that's basically the 19th century. The third chapter covers what is often called Jim Crow, you know, the era of segregation. And so from basically, you know, the late 1870s up to, you know, the 1940s or 50s when the civil rights movement happens. The, uh, the fourth chapter then covers, uh, it's kind of a unique chapter. It covers both the civil rights movement and the religious right movement of the, you know, 1970s, 1980s, 90s. Uh, and then the final chapter is on the 21st century. I mean, in terms of highlighting a few, uh, you know, so that's the broad sort of periods. I mean, just to highlight a couple of my favorite things from this section. Um, one of the things in, in, so I write the first chapter in the book, which is the chapter on the early national era and the second great awakening. And of course that's when the stone Campbell movement really emerges in America during the second great awakening. And I learned so much in this chapter, for instance, when I was researching and writing this chapter, um, the evangelical movement um, boy, it looked like they were going to be a moral center of society there in the 1780s and 1790s. Um, evangelicals and, from John Wesley and even Barton Stone in, in, a, in our movement and, and Francis Asbury and many others condemned the institution of slavery, of chattel slavery, the enslavement of, of, of especially of folks stolen from Africa as satanic and against Christianity. They explicitly said this. Some of them even argued that people who participated in slaveholding should, should be thrown out of the Christian church because it was so fundamentally against the Christian gospel. Um, and the Methodists and even Barton Stone put forward some uh, legislation in the Presbyterian church there in early 1800, uh, suggesting that slaveholders should be should be removed from the Presbyterian church because it was such a moral injury. Um, however, it's a tragic story because by the 1810s, slavery had taken off so much and had become such an economic part of the South. And so many of these new denominations that in the 1790s were kind of new, like the Baptists and the Methodists, at least in America, and the, and the Christians, the Stone Christians, they were kind of on the edges and on the margins. They sort of had this prophetic voice and they were condemning this institution. By the 1810s, 
all of them without almost without exception moved to an accommodationist position that is they stopped arguing for immediate emancipation and instead argued for the uh the conversion of enslaved people and so it's a real tragedy and then there's a move into seeing the colonization society that is putting enslaved africans freeing them and then and then putting them in liberia so recolonizing folks uh, and that's where a lot of these folks put in their their money in the 1810s 1820s so there's this real change and so that's a really really important story for us to know for us to be aware of at least in my education growing up i heard oh the abolition movement really starts in the 18 you know 30s or whatever no th there were a lot of people who were anti-slavery and called it straight up evil and satanic including in our in our uh, movement and yet there is this shift to accommodation, which is a real tragedy. The other uh, chapter I might highlight, there, there are all these chapters are great, but the chapter on the 21st century that Joel Brown writes, uh, the last one in this, is just so important for, for us to be aware. He's covering things that are so important for us to be aware of. He's looking at evangelical Christians and many in the you know churches of Christ and Christian churches and, and ICOC kind of fit in this cultural category. He, he are, he's trying to explain why so many of these, especially white evangelical Christians, have ended up opposing civil rights uh, for people of color, even, even though these people are well-intentioned. So he's really getting under the hood and thinking about how to understand what's going on right now. And so I really commend his chapter to um, Christians today, especially trying to navigate these really, really tough issues. So that's kind of the big broad, you know, here's the overview. There are five, and this, those five chapters cover all of American, American Christians. The next two sections get in, more into specifically Stone Campbell groups. So, so let's talk about the second entry point. It, it's about case studies. Could you share one or two of these and help us to understand why they're relevant? Yeah, absolutely. So we didn't actually set out writing, you know, we were organizing the book to have a case study section, but as authors kind of shaped and brought their framing, uh, shaped, you know, the material and brought their framing to the conversation, we ended up saying like, oh no, there's actually a really good way to think about case studies here. And so there are four case studies, one on women in the Stone Campbell movement and women and race in the Stone Campbell movement that uh, Lori Honeycutt at Pepperdine uh, wrote. There's one on, there are two actually on disciples, uh, one one on um, disciples in the civil rights movement, and then another on disciples and the initiatives that disciples have taken uh, to be an anti-racist church. And that's really, really a fascinating chapter because they do interviews of ministers to see which of these 12 initiatives have been uh, have been helpful and which haven't. And then uh, Ed Robinson, who is a historian of Black Churches of Christ, uh, he wrote a, a really fascinating chapter on racial cooperation in the Jim Crow and civil rights area. So those are the four chapters, the four case uh, studies that are in there. I think Lori's chapter is really fascinating because Lori has been spending her scholarly career trying to center women. Because in American religious history, if you go and read American religious history, women have really been slid to the margins. You know, they, they, They're not at the center of the narratives. So Lori is centering women here, um, and she, as she places them at the center of the story, she shows how women have been so influential in race relations, in congregational roles in the Stone Campbell movement, through their educational endeavors, 
and especially during the civil rights struggle for integration through publications and things like that. So she's doing stuff that, that, you know, in the archives that no one has read before in that chapter. So this is one of those chapter that breaks chapters that breaks a lot of new ground and is really, really insightful. The other one I would lift up would be Ed Robinson's. Um, he, his is fascinating because he lifts up this story of interracial cooperation during the Jim Crow era in the South when, I mean, rigid racial separation was the law. And, mm-hmm. and he finds these two just fat, you know, two, two very interesting uh, figures. Some of, some of the listeners will know the names, Jimmy Lovell and R.N. Hogan, Jimmy oh, yes. Lovell, a white, uh, a, a white leader and R.N. Hogan, a black uh, evangelist and them partnering together in this vibrant ministry that they had. And so Ed Robinson lifts this up in the most empathetic kind of way that you can yet, you know, it, even this has this tragic quality to it because as Ed gets into the archives and look at the looks at the letters, you know, that are being written, there's still, even amid this just amazing racial, this example of racial cooperation, when it doesn't really happen, there's still the um, views of white supremacy and racism and racist attitudes that sort of seep into Lovell's view of R.N. Hogan, and but but R.N. Hogan calls it out, and so there's still this kind of racial tension and antagonism that are rooted in this real deep, um, this deep belief that white people are superior among white folks in America. And the book unpacks that throughout. That that's a constant. That's a constant point we hit at. Oh, here's the law that said it. Here, here are more policies that enforced, you know, white supremacy or this idea that white people are superior to other uh, colors of people. And so here you see in this just beautiful example of racial cooperation still this heritage of racism in our in our past that uh, these these brothers in Christ are having to wrestle with. Mm. Yes, we still have a long way to go for sure. But the last entry point is ways forward. Where do we go from here? So please help us, you know, in this context that you were just talking about, get a clearer picture of what you see as the way forward. Yeah, so there are three chapters here on kind of the ways forward or proposals. Um, They're written by Richard Hughes, who is a um, preeminent historian of Stone Campbell movement in American religion. Jerry Taylor, who is a prominent Churches of Christ um, preacher. And Tanya Smith Bryce, who is also, she's been doing some really good work uh, for Black Churches of Christ and especially thinking about race relations in Churches of Christ. And so those are the three authors and they, they take up different tasks. I'll, I'll tell you what they say and then I'll, I'll, I'll give you my sort of my two cents as well. Um, so Richard, Richard Hughes, his article is called Resisting White Supremacy. And what he's arguing there is that what we have to do, and Richard has this long um, history of explaining this uh, in, in history books. So he's, he's explained this before, but he gives us the vi- advice that we must view our culture through the lens of the Bible and through the ethical vision of the kingdom of God, rather than getting duped and viewing the Bible through the lens of our culture or whatever sort of allegiances we're being called to in the world. And it's a really, really provocative call. He goes through and explains how white supremacy has been at the center of American church and American politics. And he just gives you a laundry list of quotes from many, uh, many, many Americans and American Christians. And he just calls us and, and shows over and over again how people have sort of been influenced more by culture than by the ethical vision of the kingdom of God. Now, obviously, it's easier said than done. 
Um, but I agree with him here. Christians must be animated by kingdom principles to engage their churches, to engage our societies. But instead, Christians are often co-opted by partisan interests. And he names this, right? But by partisan, I mean by party interests, um, you know, especially political party interests or other causes, causes that are, you know, tangential or not related to the king, king, kingdom has to be focused, focused. So um, the central focus and, and any time that we put another, you know, cause in front of the kingdom, um, you know, he, he says we get duped and we put wrong, we make, we put hope in causes that are not rooted in the kingdom. So, so that's, that's Richard's um, article. Jerry Taylor actually holds up Doug Foster. So he, he did the, he did the chapter where we're like looking at Doug Foster's life. And it's really, it's really good because, you know, Jerry Taylor, uh, who is a black man working at Abilene Christian University, which is predominantly white uh, institution, and so his perspective is really helpful to understand how Doug has been an ally, both in his own life, but also more broadly in the institution. And then finally, and so, so he gives a lot of advice about what Doug did that a lot of people can follow. And then Tanya's, Tanya's article actually looks at the 1960s, especially a 1968 race relations workshop that, that some uh, listeners might be familiar with, if those who have read um, history. So there's a major workshop in Churches of Christ, a race relations workshop in, um, in Nashville, and there's others as well. And she actually just holds up the list that they came up with, which is so cool because I actually still use this list. There's a list. It's not just, there are several workshops, but then there's this statement about, Hey, look, we admit that there has been racism in 1968. And here are a list of things that individuals can do. Here's a list of things that churches can do. Here are a list of things that institutions can do to better race relations. And I actually hand that out still today in my classes when we're on that era of Christian history. And I hand it out and I say, all right, everybody, read this and find the top three things you think still would be really, really helpful today in the churches. And and there are way more than three, right? And so Tanya actually has a list. She lists like 15 things that, that they came up with that are still really useful today. And so that's a little bit of what you'll get in the book, sort of these, this advice. And, and a lot of it will be familiar. Most of it's not rocket science. Most of it's just getting over um, our fears and really engaging in sort of prophetic ministry and prophetic imagination. So in my own view, let me give you my two cents. Um, I know I've been in, talking for a minute here, but I do want to give you my two cents. Um, I think in the end, the way forward for Christian unity really must begin by listening and being in solidarity with the oppressed. This is really, and I'll tell you how I've gotten there. Um, I, I think those who have been, who have historically been in power and have been granted privilege must listen to those who have historically been negatively affected and negatively impacted in the past and today. Um, and, and I'll tell you, one of the working hypotheses I have, and I, and I always tell, explain this to my uh, classes, and I'll explain this to the listeners here, is as a historian, I'm, I'm plagued by this, um, this in history, there are always people at every moment in time that use the Bible to oppress and that use the Bible to live into anti-kingdom ways of being. And always at the same time, there are Christians who are getting it right, who are today, we would call them, you know, the prophets. They're the ones who are speaking truth and they, they understood. And so I wonder as a historian, as I look back through the long um, history of, of American Christianity, but a Christianity even more broadly across history, um, is there anything that those people who saw clearly hold in common? Is there any common characteristic 
of those people who we look back today and say, oh my gosh, they, they, they understood it. Even and they were speaking loudly to other Christians in 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 their own time, and those Christians missed it. And the thing that I think that I found over and over that they hold in common is either they were among the oppressed and the marginalized and were experiencing oppression, or they might have been among privileged, but then they 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 consciously placed themselves in solidarity with the oppressed and listened and spent time with and understood life um, from a different perspective. And that's why I say, man, all of these, all of these people that we look back on, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois or, you know, Frederick Douglass or Ida B. Wells or, you know, R.N. Hogan, these people that saw clearly in the Christian tradition, one thing that they always have in common is that they're listening or they are with, in solidarity with the oppressed. I think that is something that we must, you know, we, we, we must figure out a way, um, those of us who are in privileged positions historically, we must find a way to listen well uh, and tell our stories honestly, tell our stories honestly, prayerfully repent about ways that we have hurt folks, whether it's Christian tradition in the past or today, and work hard to make things better. Again, not rocket science, but not easy. Jamie, that is a, a great call, and it's been convicting, challenging. Um, boy, I just want to say, as, as a guest, that we could continue this conversation for another hour. It would, it would I know, keep our <laughs> listeners listening. Um, it's just been a real blessing to, to talk about this book, to talk about this work, and more than informing us, you've inspired us. So we've got to bring our conversation to a close, but boy, I thank you for being with us. Thank you so much again for having me. It's been a real honor. Well, I, I want to mention the work again because we want our folks to have access to these resources that we talk about. The book is called Slavery's Long Shadow, Race and Reconciliation in American Christianity. Uh, I, I want to say Jamie, but on the book, I think it's James Gorman uh, edited, edited the book along with Jeff Childers and Mark Hamilton, as he mentioned, and a lot of great contributors to it. So uh, you can get that book on Amazon or other booksellers. Uh, pick it up. It'll be a very informative work. And I would say challenging work as well. So, Jamie, it's been a, been a delight once again. And Nadine, just so great to have you with us. Thank oh, you. Thank you. Thank you. I love this episode. This was amazing. Thank you, Jamie. Well, you are, you're a great co-host. And, uh, hey, uh, Jamie, Nadine and I have one more question for you before you get away. <laughs> and, and this is one, boy, it's a heavy question. Um, I know you're probably tired. You've been just sharing with us out of your heart and mind for a while and, and, and teaching is hard work and talking is hard work. But Common Grounds Unity is about the idea that unity starts with a cup of coffee, sitting down across the table from another brother or sister or a group, and, and starting to talk. So if Nadine and I were to be there at Johnson University with you on the campus and have a cup of coffee, how do you take your coffee? <laughs> Black. Black. No cream, no sugar. No. And a lot of it. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. You're my friend. <laughs> hey, look, I am I am a coffee snob. I, I roast my own coffee, grind it in the morning. I mean, I it's it's the worst. I love, I love coffee. Oh man, that makes me want to get with you and have you 
provide the coffee anytime. And you know what? Now I don't, I don't know. Uh, Nadine, do you guys, do you grow coffee uh, in Nepal? Yes, yes, absolutely. All right. Well, that is next on my list. Ethiopian is my favorite, but you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to branch out. All right. (laughs) Well, very good. Well, Nadine, Jamie, thank you for being with us. Folks, thank you for uh, listening into this conversation. This is just a little example of what we're trying to do in gatherings across the country uh, in person. And we hope uh, that this has inspired you not only to think about the issues we've discussed, but to get together with other believers, both in the Stone Campbell movement and beyond, and start a gathering in your local community to bring people together in Christ. So, until next time, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for listening to the Common Grounds Unity podcast. Please check out commongroundsunity.org to learn more about who we are. There are plenty of resources, and you can subscribe to the weekly email articles, join the Facebook group, or find our YouTube channel. We've also provided a link in the show notes for comments. You can ask questions or suggest topics and guests. If you would like to partner with us financially, you can do that too through the show notes or on our website. Until next time, God bless. And remember, unity starts with a cup of coffee.